Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 7 Crawley of Queen's Crawley Among the most respected names beginning with C in the court guide was that of Sir Pitt Crawley, Baronet of Great Gaunt Street and of Queen's Crawley, Hampshire. This honourable name had been in the parliamentary list for many years. It is related, regarding the borough of Queen's Crawley, that Queen Elizabeth, in one of her progresses, stopped at Crawley for breakfast. She was so delighted with some remarkably fine beer which was presented to her by the Crawley of the day, a handsome gentleman with a trim beard and a good leg, that she forthwith made Crawley into a borough eligible to send two members to Parliament. The place took the name of Queen's Crawley. And though it was no longer so populous a place as it had been in Queen Bess's time, nay, had so few voters that it might even be called a rotten borough, yet, as Sir Pitt Crawley would say in his elegant way, Rotten be hanged! It gives me a good fifteen hundred pounds a year! Sir Pitt Crawley, named after the great politician, was the son of Walpole Crawley, first baronet of the tape and sealing wax office in George II's reign, who was impeached for embezzlement, as were a great many other honest gentlemen of those days. The family tree mentions Charles Stuart Barebones Crawley, of James I's time, and Queen Elizabeth's Crawley. Close by the name of Sir Pitt Crawley, Baronet, is written that of his brother, the Reverend Boot Crawley, rector of Crawley, cum Snailby. Sir Pitt was first married to Grizzle, sixth daughter of Mungo, Lord Binky. She bore him two sons, Pitt Jr. and Rawdon Crawley. Many years after her ladyship's death, Sir Pitt married Rosa Dawson of Mudbury, by whom he had two daughters. For their benefit, Miss Rebecca Sharp was now engaged as governess. It will be seen that the young lady was come into a family of very genteel connections and a much more distinguished circle than that humble one she had just quitted in Russell Square. She had received her orders in a note written upon an old envelope which said, Sir Pitt Crawley begs Miss Sharp and baggage may be here on Tuesday as I leaf for Queen's Crawley tomorrow morning early. Rebecca had never seen a baronet, and as soon as she had said goodbye to Amelia and counted the money which Mr. Sedley had given her, and had finished wiping her eyes, just as the carriage turned the corner, she began to imagine what a baronet must be. I wonder, does he wear a star? thought she. He will be very handsomely dressed in a court suit, with ruffles, and his hair powdered. I suppose he will be awfully proud, and that I shall be treated contemptuously. Still, at least I shall be amongst gentlefolks, and not vulgar city people. 
The carriage entered Great Gaunt Street and stopped at a tall, gloomy house between two other tall, gloomy houses. This was Sir Pitt's mansion. The shutters of the first-floor windows were closed. Those of the dining-room were partially open, and the blinds neatly covered in old newspapers. John, the groom, who had driven the carriage, asked a passing milk-boy to ring the bell for him. The door was opened by a man in drab breeches and a dirty old coat, with a foul old neckcloth lashed around his bristly neck, a shining bald head, a leering red face, a pair of twinkling grey eyes, and a mouth perpetually grinning. "'This Sir Pitt Crowley's,' said John. "'Yes,' said the man at the door, with a nod. "'Hand down these here trunks, then,' said John. "'And then down yourself,' said the porter. "'Don't you see as I can't leave my horses? "'Come on, lend a hand, and Miss Mill... "'Come, lend a hand, and Miss will give you some beer,' said John. "'The bald man, taking his hands out of his pockets, "'threw Miss Sharp's trunk over his shoulder and carried it into the house. "'Take this basket and shawl, if you please, and open the door,' said Miss Sharp. "'descending from the carriage in indignation. "'I shall write to Mr. Sedley and inform him of your conduct,' "'said she to the groom. "'Don't,' he replied. "'I hope you've got Miss Melia's gowns, "'as the lady's maid was to have had. Oh, "'Shut the door, Jim. "'You'll get no good out of her,' he continued, "'pointing his thumb towards Miss Sharp. "'A bad lot, I tell you.' "'So saying, he drove away.' The truth is, he was attached to the lady's maid in question, who had been robbed of her dresses. Rebecca entered the dining-room. The carpet was rolled up under the sideboard. The pictures were hidden behind old sheets of brown paper. The ceiling lamp was muffled in a sack. The marble bust of Sir Walpole Crawley was looking from its black corner at the bare boards. The chairs were turned up, heads and tails, along the wall. Two kitchen chairs, a round table, and an old poker and tongs were, however, gathered round the fireplace, as was a saucepan over a feeble, sputtering fire. There was a bit of cheese and bread, and a tin candlestick on the table, and a little black beer in a pint pot. "'Had your dinner, I suppose?' said the bald man. "'Like a drop of beer?' "'Where is Sir Pitt Crawley?' said Miss Sharp majestically. <laughs> I'm Sir Pitt Crawley. <laughs> Reflect you owe me a pint for bringing down your luggage. <laughs> Ask Tinker if I ain't. Mrs. Tinker, meet Miss Sharp. Miss Governess, meet Mrs. Charwoman. <laughs> the lady addressed as Mrs. Tinker now appeared with a pipe and tobacco, for which he had been sent a minute before Miss Sharp's arrival. She handed these over to Sir Pitt, who took his seat by the fire. "'Where's the farthing?' said he. "'I gave you three halfpence. Where's the change, old Tinker?' "'There,' replied Mrs. Tinker, flinging down the coin. "'It's only baronets as cares about farthings.' "'A farthing a day is seven shillings a year,' answered the Member of Parliament. Seven, seven shillings a year is the interest of seven guineas. <laughs> Take care of your farthings, old Tinker, and your guineas will come out quite natural. You may be sure it's Sir Pitt Crawley, young woman, 
said Mrs. Tinker, surlily, because he looks to his farthings. You'll know him better afore long. And like me none the worse, Miss Sharp, said the old gentleman, almost politely. Get another chair from the kitchen, Tinker, and then we'll have supper. The baronet plunged a fork into the saucepan on the fire and withdrew a piece of tripe and an onion, which he divided into equal portions. You see, Miss Sharp, when I'm in town, Tinker dines with the family. <laughs> I'm glad Miss Sharp's not hungry, ain't you, Tink? And they fell too upon their frugal supper. After supper, Sir Pitt Crawley began to smoke his pipe, and when it became quite dark, he lit the rushlight in the tin candlestick, and producing from his pocket a huge mass of papers, began reading them. "'I'm here in London on law business, my dear, "'and that's why I shall have such a pretty travelling companion tomorrow. <laughs> "'He's always at law business,' said Mrs. Tinker. "'Oh, Tinker's quite right,' <laughs> said the baronet. "'I've lost in one more lawsuits than any man in England. "'Look here, Crawley, baronet versus Snaffle. "'I'll throw him over, or my name's not Big Crawley.' <laughs> "'Overseers of Snaily Parish against Crawley, Baronet. "'They can't prove it's common land. "'I'll defy him. "'The land's mine. "'I'll beat him if it costs me a thousand guineas. "'Look over the papers if you like, my dear. "'Oh, do, do you write a good hand? "'I'll make a useful when we're at Queen's Crawley. "'Now the dowagers did, I need someone.' "'She was as bad as he,' said Tinker. She took every one of her tradesmen to court and turned away forty-eight footmen in four years. Oh, she was very close, said the baronet simply. But she was a valuable woman to me and saved me a steward. And in this strain, to Rebecca's amusement, the conversation continued. Sir Pitt talked of himself incessantly, sometimes in the vulgarest accent, sometimes adopting the tone of a man of the world. At last he told Miss Sharp to be ready at five in the morning. "'You'll sleep with Tinker tonight,' he said. "'It's a big bed, and there's room for two. Lady Crawley died in it. Good night.' Sir Pitt went off, and the solemn Tinker led the way up the great bleak stone stairs, past great drawing-room doors, with the handles muffled up in paper, into the great front bedroom. It was so funereal and gloomy, you might have fancied that not only had Lady Crawley died in the room, but that her ghost inhabited it. Rebecca peeped into the huge wardrobes and cupboards and tried the locked drawers while the old charwoman was saying her prayers. "'I shouldn't like to sleep in this bed without a good conscience, miss,' said the old woman. "'There's room for us and half a dozen ghosts in it,' says Rebecca." "'Tell me all about Lady Crawley and Sir Pitt Crawley, my dear Mrs. Tinker.' But old Tinker was not to be pumped, and soon set up a loud snore. Rebecca lay awake, thinking of the new world in which he was going and of her chances of success there. The rushlight flickered in the basin. The mantelpiece cast a great black shadow over two family pictures of young lads that hung there, one in a college gown and the other in a red jacket like a soldier. When she went to sleep, Rebecca chose that one to dream about. 
At four o'clock, Tinker wakened her and bid her prepare for departure. Unbolting the great hall door with a clang, she summoned a coach to take them to the public carriage in the city. The driver was not happy when, on arriving there, Sir Pitt refused to tip him. He flung down Miss Sharp's bandboxes in the gutter and swore he would take him to law. Hey, you'd better not, said one of the ostlers. It's Sir Pitt Crawley. So it is, Joe, cried the baronet, and he climbed up onto the box of the public carriage. Miss Sharp sat inside next to a young man from Cambridge, along with an asthmatic gentleman, a prim lady who declared she had never travelled in a public carriage before, and a fat widow with a brandy bottle. How the carriage at length drove away, threading the dark lanes of Aldersgate, clattering by St. Paul's and the white bear at Piccadilly, until they saw the dew rising up from the market gardens of Knightsbridge, need not be told. But I cannot think of this journey without tender regret. Where is the road now? And those old, honest, pimple-nosed coachmen? And the waiters? And their inns? And the cold rounds of beef inside? And the stunted ostler with his blue nose and clinking pail? Where is he? To future generations, these things will be as much legend as Nineveh. Stagecoaches will have become romances, a team of four bays as fabulous as Bucephalus. <laughs> Alas, we shall never hear the horn sing at midnight or see the pike gates fly open any more. Where is the coach carrying us? Let us be set down at Queen's Crawley and see how Miss Rebecca Sharp fares there. Chapter 8. Private and Confidential. Miss Rebecca Sharp to Miss Amelia Sedley, Russell Square, London. My dearest, sweetest Amelia, with what mingled joy and sorrow do I take up the pen to write to my dearest friend. Oh, what a change between today and yesterday. Now I am friendless and alone. Yesterday I was in the sweet company of a sister, whom I shall always cherish. I will not tell you in what tears I passed the fatal night in which I separated from you. You went on Tuesday to joy and happiness with your mother and your devoted young soldier by your side, and I thought of you all night, the prettiest, I am sure, of all the young ladies at the ball. I was brought by the groom to Sir Pitt Crawley's townhouse, where, after John the groom had behaved most insolently to me— Alas, twas safe to insult poverty. I was given over to Sir P.'s care, and made to pass the night in a gloomy old bed, besides a gloomy old charwoman. I did not sleep one wink the whole night. Sir Pitt is not what we silly girls at school imagined a baronet to be. Imagine an old, stumpy, vulgar, very dirty man, in shabby gaiters, who smokes a horrid pipe and cooks his own horrid supper in a saucepan, and swore a great deal at the old charwoman, and at the coachman who drove us to the inn where the coach went from, on which I made the journey outside for most of the way. I was at first placed inside the coach, but when we got to a place called Leakington, where the rain began to fall heavily— 
I was forced to make way for another passenger and go outside in the rain, where, however, a young gentleman from Cambridge College sheltered me very kindly in one of his greatcoats. This gentleman and the guard seemed to know Sir Pitt very well and laughed at him a great deal. They called him an old screw, which means a very stingy person. He never gives any money to anybody, they said, and pointed out that we drove very slow for the last two stages on the road because Sir Pitt owns the horses for this part of the journey. However, a carriage and four splendid horses awaited us at Mudbury, four miles from Queen's Crawley, and we entered the Baronet's Park in state. There is a fine avenue a mile long leading to the house. "'There's six thousand pound of timber in them there trees,' said Sir Pitt. "'Do you call that nothing?' He pronounced it nothing. So droll. And he had a Mr. Hodson, his steward from Mudbury, in the carriage with him, and they talked about draining and subsoiling and tenants and farming, and how Sam Miles had been caught poaching and Peterbelly had gone to the workhouse at last. Oh, "'Serve him right!' said Sir Pitt. Him and his family has been cheating me on that farm these hundred and fifty years. He might have said, he and his family, to be sure, but rich baronets do not need to be careful about grammar, as poor governesses must be. I noticed a beautiful church spire rising above some old elms in the park, and nearby an old red house covered with ivy. Is that your church, sir? I said. "'Oh, yes, hang it,' said Sir Pitt, "'only he used here a much wickeder word. "'How's Booty, Hodson?' "'Booty's my brother, Boot, the parson, my dear. "'Booty and the Beast, I call him.' <laughs> "'Hodson laughed, too, and then said more gravely, "'I'm afraid he's better, Sir Pitt. "'He was out on his pony yesterday looking at our corn. "'Looking after his ties, hangin'. "'Will Brandy never kill him? "'He's as tough as old Methuselah.' "'I gathered that the brothers do not get on. "'Seeing two little boys gathering sticks in the wood, "'Mr. Hodson jumped out of the carriage "'and rushed upon them with his whip. "'Pitch into him, Hodson!' roared the baronet. "'Flog their little souls out and bring him up to the house, the vagabonds!' We heard Mr. Hodson's whip cracking on the shoulders of the poor little blubbering wretches. Sir Pitt drove on to the hall. All the servants were ready to meet us, and— Oh, here, my dear, I was interrupted last night by a dreadful thumping at my door. And who do you think it was? Sir Pitt Crawley, in his nightcap and dressing gown. <laughs> Such a figure! As I shrank away, he came forward and seized my candle. "'No candles after eleven o'clock, Miss Becky,' said he. "'Go to bed in the dark, you pretty little hussy.' "'That is what he called me. "'And unless you wish me to come for the candle every night, "'be in bed at eleven. <laughs> "'And with this, he and Mr. Horrocks the butler went off laughing. "'You may be sure I shall not encourage any more of their visits.' They let loose two immense bloodhounds at night, which were howling at the moon. He's killed a man, that dog has, said Sir Pitt. <laughs> the house of Queen's Crawley is an odious, old-fashioned red-brick mansion, with tall chimneys and a terrace on which the great hall door opens. And, oh, my dear, 
The great hall is as big and glum as that in the castle of Udolfo. It has a large fireplace, in which we might fit half Miss Pinkerton's school, and the grate is big enough to roast an ox. Round the room hang generations of Crawleys, some with beards and ruffs, some with huge wigs, some dressed in gowns as stiff as towers. At one end of the hall is the great staircase in dismal black oak, and on either side are tall doors with stag's heads over them leading to the billiard room, and the library, and the yellow saloon, and the morning rooms. I think there are at least twenty bedrooms upstairs. One of them has the bed in which Queen Elizabeth slept. I have been taken by my new pupils through all these fine apartments this morning. We have a schoolroom on the second floor, with my bedroom on one side of it, and that of the young ladies on the other. Then there are the rooms of the baronet's two sons, young Mr. Pitt's apartments, Mr. Crawley, he is called, the eldest son, and Mr. Rawdon Crawley's rooms. He is an officer like somebody, and away with his regiment. Half an hour after our arrival, the dinner bell was rung, and I came down in your dear muslin gown with my two pupils. They are insignificant little chits of ten and eight years old. We assembled in the little drawing-room with my lady Crawley, the girl's mother. She was an ironmonger's daughter, and looks as if she had been handsome once, but she is pale and meagre, and has not a word to say for herself. Her stepson, Mr. Crawley, was in the room, in full dress, as pompous as an undertaker. He is pale, ugly, and silent. He has thin legs, no chest, hay-colored whiskers, and straw-colored hair. He is the very picture of his late sainted mother over the mantelpiece. "'This is the new governess, Mr. Crawley,' said Lady Crawley, coming forward and taking my hand. "'Miss Sharp!' "'Oh!' said Mr. Crawley, and began to read a pamphlet. "'I hope you'll be kind to my girls,' said Lady Crawley, with her pink eyes full of tears. I saw that I need not be afraid of her. "'My lady is served,' said the butler, in an immense white shirt-frill, like one of Queen Elizabeth's ruffs, and so, taking Mr. Crawley's arm, she led the way to the dining-room. Sir Pitt was already there with a silver jug. He had just been to the cellar and was in full dress, too. That is, he had taken his gaiters off and showed his little dumpy legs in black woolen stockings. The sideboard was covered with glistening old gold and silver cups and dishes. Everything on the table was silver, and two footmen stood by the sideboard. Mr. Crawley said a long grace, and Sir Pitt said, Amen, and the great silver dish covers were removed. What have we for dinner, Betsy? said the baronet. Mutton broth, I believe, Sir Pitt, answered Lady Crawley. Mouton au navet, added Horrocks the butler gravely, and the soup is potage de mouton à l'Écossaise. The side dishes contain pommes de terre au naturel and choufleur à l'eau. Mutton's mutton, said the baronet, and a devilish good thing. <laughs> what sheep was it, Horrocks? One of the black-faced Scotch, Sir Pitt, killed on Thursday. 
Will you take some potage, Miss, uh, Miss Blunt? <laughs> said Mr. Crawley. Capital Scotch broth, my dear, said Sir Pitt, though they call it by a French name. While we were enjoying our repast, Sir Pitt asked what had become of the shoulders of the button. I believe they were eaten in the servants' hall, said my lady humbly. They was, my lady, said Horrocks, and precious little else we get there. Sir Pitt burst into a laugh. That little black pig of the Kenso must be uncommon fat now. It's not quite busting, Sir Pitt, said the butler gravely, at which the young ladies began to laugh. Miss Crawley, Miss Rose Crawley, <laughs> said Mr. Crawley, your laughter is exceedingly out of place. Never mind, my lord, said the baronet. We'll try the porker on Saturday. Killin' on a Saturday morning, Oryx. Miss Sharp adores pork, don't you, Miss Sharp? <laughs> this is all the conversation that I remember at dinner. When it was over, rum and hot water were placed before Sir Pitt, while Mr. Horrocks served myself and my pupils with three little glasses of wine, and a bumper was poured out for my lady. When we retired, she took out an enormous piece of knitting. The young ladies began to play cribbage with a dirty pack of cards. We had only one candle, but it was in a magnificent silver candlestick, and I had my choice of amusement between a volume of sermons and a pamphlet on the corn laws, which Mr. Crawley had been reading before dinner. So we sat for an hour until steps were heard. "'Put away the cards, girls,' cried my lady in a great tremor, and this order had been scarcely obeyed when Mr. Crawley entered the room. "'We will resume yesterday's discourse, young ladies,' said he, "'and you shall each read a page by turns, so that Miss, 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 uh, Miss Short may have an opportunity of hearing you.' The poor girls began to read out a long, dismal sermon delivered on behalf of the mission for the Chickasaw Indians. Was it not a charming evening? At ten, Sir Pitt and the household were called to prayers. Sir Pitt came in very flushed and rather unsteady, and after him the butler, the footman, Mr. Crawley's man, three other men, smelling of the stable, and four women, one of whom was very much overdressed. This was Miss Horrocks, the butler's daughter, who flung me a look of great scorn. After Mr. Crawley had done haranguing, we received our candles and went to bed, and then I was disturbed in my writing, as I have described to my dearest, sweetest Amelia. Good night. A thousand, thousand kisses. Saturday. This morning at five, I heard the shrieking of the little black pig. Rose and Violet introduced me to it yesterday, and to the stables, and the kettle, and the gardener, who was picking fruit, and from whom they begged for a bunch of hothouse grapes, but he said that Sir Pitt had counted them. The darling girls caught a colt in a paddock, and asked me if I would ride when the groom, with horrid oaths, drove them away. Lady Crawley is always knitting. Sir Pitt is tipsy every night, and I believe sits with Horrocks the butler. 
Mr. Crowley always reads sermons in the evening, and in the morning is locked up in his study, or else rides to Mudbury on business, or to Squashmore, where he preaches on Wednesdays and Fridays. A hundred thousand grateful loves to your dear papa and mamma. Is your poor brother recovered of his rack punch? Oh, dear. Oh, dear. How men should beware of wicked punch. Ever and ever, thine own Rebecca. Everything considered, I think it is quite as well for our dear Amelia Sedley that Miss Sharp and she are parted. Rebecca is a droll, funny creature, to be sure, and those descriptions are very smart, doubtless, and show a great knowledge of the world. That she might, when on her knees, have been thinking of something better than Miss Horrocks' ribbons, has possibly struck both of us. But please remember that this history has Vanity Fair for a title, and that Vanity Fair is a very vain, wicked, foolish place full of humbug and pretension. I warn my friends, then, that I am going to tell a story of harrowing villainy and complicated, but I trust intensely interesting, crime. My rascals are no milk-and-water rascals, I promise you. When we come to the proper places, we won't spare fine language. Oh, no, 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 no. But in the quiet country, everything considered, I think it is quite as well for our dear Amelia Sedley that Miss Sharp and she are parted. Rebecca is a droll, funny creature, to be sure, and those descriptions are very smart, doubtless, and show a great knowledge of the world. That she might, when on her knees, have been thinking of something better than Miss Horrocks's ribbons has possibly struck both of us. But please remember that this history has Vanity Fair for a title, and that Vanity Fair is a very vain, wicked, foolish place full of humbug and pretension. I warn my friends, then, that I am going to tell a story of harrowing villainy and complicated, but I trust intensely interesting, crime. My rascals are no milk-and-water rascals, I promise you. When we come to the proper places, we won't spare fine language. Oh, no, no, no. But in the quiet country, we must be calm. A tempest in a slop basin is absurd. The present chapter is very mild. Others, ah, but we will not anticipate those. Chapter 9. Family Portraits Sir Pitt Crawley had a taste for what is called low life. His first marriage with the daughter of the noble Binky had been arranged by his parents, and he often told Lady Crawley that she was such a confounded, quarrelsome, high-bred jade that when she died he was hanged if he would ever take another of her sort. So, at her death, he selected for a second wife Miss Rose Dawson, daughter of an ironmonger. What a happy woman was Rose to be my Lady Crawley. Let us set down the items of her happiness. In the first place, she gave up another young man, who in his disappointment took to smuggling and poaching. Then she quarreled with all the friends of her youth, who of course could not be received at Queen's Crawley. 
nor did she find any new friends, since the baronets of the county were indignant at their comrade's marriage. Sir Pitt did not care. He had his pretty rose, and he could please himself. So he used to get drunk every night, to beat his pretty rose sometimes, to leave her in Hampshire when he went to London without a single friend in the world. Even Mrs. Boot Crowley, the rector's wife, refused to visit her because she was a tradesman's daughter. As Lady Crowley's only gifts were those of pink cheeks and white skin, and as she had no character, nor talents, nor opinions, nor occupations, her hold upon Sir Pitt's affections was not very great. The roses faded out of her cheeks, and the pretty freshness left her figure after the birth of a couple of children. She became a mere machine in her husband's house, of no more use than a grand piano. She worked at her knitting day and night. She had a small flower garden, for which she had an affection, but no other like or dislike. When her husband was rude to her, she was apathetic. When he struck her, she cried. She moaned about, slipshod, and in curl papers all day. Oh, Vanity Fair! Vanity Fair! She might have lived on a snug farm, but a title and a coach and four are more precious than happiness in Vanity Fair. The languid dullness of their mamma did not awaken much affection in her little daughters, but they were very happy in the servants' hall and in the stables, and the Scotch gardener, having luckily a good wife and some good children, they got a little wholesome society and instruction in his house, which was their only education, until Miss Sharp came. Her engagement was owing to young Mr. Pitt Crawley, the only protector Lady Crawley had, and the only person, besides her children, for whom she felt any attachment. Mr. Pitt was a very polite and proper gentleman. When he came back from university, he began to reform the slackened discipline of the hall, in spite of his father, who stood in awe of him. He was a man of such rigid refinement that he would have starved rather than have dined without a white neckcloth. When he was at home, Sir Pitt's muddy gaiters disappeared, and the old man never fuddled himself with rum and water in his son's presence, and did not swear at Lady Crawley while his son was in the room. Mr. Crawley treated his stepmother with respect. He never let her quit the room without rising in the most stately manner to open the door and making an elegant bow. At Eton he was called Miss Crawley, and there, I am sorry to say, his younger brother Rawdon used to beat him violently. But he worked with industry, if not talent, and at college his career was highly creditable. He prepared for public life by studying the ancient and modern orators, and by speaking unceasingly at the debating societies. But though he delivered his little speeches with great pomposity, and never advanced any opinion which was not perfectly trite and stale, yet he failed somehow, in spite of a mediocrity which ought to have ensured success. After leaving college, he became private secretary to his grandfather, Lord Binky, and was then appointed attaché to the legation at Pumpernickel, which post he filled with perfect honour. 
After ten years, he gave up the diplomatic service in some disgust at his lack of advancement and began to turn country gentleman. On returning to England, he wrote a pamphlet on malt and took a strong part in the Negro emancipation question. He was a friend of Mr. Wilberforce's and became a magistrate and an active speaker on religious instruction. He patronized an independent meeting-house in Crawley Parish, much to the indignation of his uncle, the rector, and to the consequent delight of Sir Pitt. Mr. Crawley was said to be paying his addresses to Lady Jane Sheepshanks, Lord Southdown's third daughter. Mr. Crawley thought that his father should yield him up his place in Parliament, but this the elder refused to do. Both were, of course, too prudent to give up the fifteen hundred pounds a year which was brought in by selling the second seat, at this time filled by a Mr. Quadroon, for the family estate was in debt. Before the heavy fine imposed upon Walpole Crawley for embezzlement, the cellars at Queen Crawley had been filled with burgundy, the kennels with hounds and the stables with gallant hunters. Now, any horses went to plough or ran in the public coach. If Sir Pitt Crawley had been an attorney in a country town, it is possible that he would have done well. But he was unluckily endowed with a large, though encumbered, estate. He had a taste for law, which cost him many thousands yearly, and was such a sharp landlord that he could hardly find any but bankrupt tenants and such a close farmer as to grudge almost the seed to the ground. He speculated in mines and canals and government contracts, but as he would not pay honest agents at his granite quarry, four overseers ran away and took fortunes with them to America. He was sociable and not proud. He preferred the society of a farmer or a horse-dealer to that of a gentleman. He was fond of drink of swearing, of joking with the farmer's daughters. He was never known to give away a shilling or to do a good action, but was of a pleasant, sly, laughing mood, and would joke and drink with a tenant and sell him up the next day. In a word, the whole baronetage did not contain a more cunning, mean, selfish, foolish, disreputable old man." Mr. Crawley's hold over his father resulted from money arrangements. The baronet owed his son money out of his mother's jointure, which he did not wish to pay. Indeed, he had a great repugnance to paying anybody, and could only be brought by force to discharge his debts. Oh, vanity fair! Ah, oh, vanity fair! Here was a boorish man who could not spell, and did not read, who never had an enjoyment but what was sordid and foul, and yet he had rank and power, and was a pillar of the state. He was high sheriff and rode in a golden coach. Great ministers and statesmen courted him, and in Vanity Fair he had a higher place than the most brilliant genius or spotless virtue." Sir Pitt had an unmarried half-sister who inherited her mother's large fortune, and though the baronet proposed to borrow this money from her, Miss Crawley declined the offer, 
She said, however, that she intended to leave her inheritance divided between Sir Pitt's second son, Rawdon, and the family at the rectory, and had once or twice paid Rawdon Crawley's debts. Miss Crawley was, in consequence, an object of great respect when she came to Queen's Crawley. What dignity it gives an old lady a balance at the banker's! How tenderly we look at her faults! What a kind, good-natured old creature we find her! Your wife is perpetually sending her affectionate gifts. Your little girls work endless baskets, cushions, and footstools for her. The house, during her stay, assumes a festive, neat, jovial appearance not visible at other seasons. And what good dinners you have! Game every day, and no end of fish from London. Ah, gracious powers! I wish you would send me a maiden aunt with a carriage. How I would make her comfortable! Oh, sweet vision! Foolish dream! Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Neimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.